0: So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on that, gar- on that earth, he made a garden. And in that garden, he put a man and a woman. And this man and this woman were God's special creation. Because them of everything that he made, only they were made in his image. To look like him. To rule the world justly and Righteously. And in this garden that he made, God himself walked and talked with them. And everything was good and right and whole. And everything was as it should be. But they rebelled. They decided that instead of following God's definition of what's good and just and right, they were going to define it for themselves. And as a result of this rebellion was this tidal wave of sin of evil, of injustice, of murder and bloodshed. And as all of these are unleashed upon the world, the, the rebellion that they committed was so deep that it shook the very foundations of the world out of order. That no longer does the world grow gardens for them, instead, thorns and thistles. No longer is their work to care for it a joy, instead, it's a toil. Nothing is good or right or whole anymore. Things aren't as they should be. But God doesn't give up on his creation. He makes promises, promises of salvation and restoration and hope and reconciliation. And he chooses for himself a family And through this family, God is going to both give them a blessing and make them a blessing to the whole world. And in the book of Genesis, we learn that this is going to come about through a son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He's going to come and he is going to set the world back in order. He is going to make things once again good and right and whole. And as they should be. But in the book of Exodus, things aren't that way. In fact, the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah don't find themselves in the land God promised them, and they don't find themselves feeling particularly blessed. Instead, they find themselves slaves in Egypt, experiencing racism and beatings and torment and agony. And so what do they do? They call out to God and ask him to do something and to intervene. And he does so. They call out to him to ask him to take action because as they look at the world they're living in, they see that things are not good, right, or whole. That things are not the way they should be. And so God, he takes action. He hears their cries And he steps in, he goes and sends to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he says, hey, let go of your servants so that they can come and serve me instead. And over and over, God brings this message to Pharaoh. And over and over again, Pharaoh says, no way. And so God issues these plagues. And they're a punishment for sin. And they are a warning to turn and obey him, to submit to him. But Pharaoh won't. And so, over and over, these plagues come until finally Pharaoh is broken and he sends the people of Israel out of Egypt. But even as they're on their way out, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he turns to try and chase them down. And as he does so, he pins them up against the ocean, against the Red Sea. And the people of Israel are trapped. But God himself saves. He parts the Red Sea. He leads his people through on dry land. And even as Pharaoh and his armies are chasing them down, he closes the waters over them to save his people. And in this moment, we see the justice of God delivering his people from slavery. We see his righteousness and his salvation as he rescues them from their enemies. When we look at him, we see a God who is good and right and whole who makes things the way they should be and as we go on in the story we see he leads them not only out of egypt but he leads them to his holy mountain and there he enters into a covenant with them this committed relationship and there god himself calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses to watch as they swear their vows one to another, that he will be their God and they will be his people. Ah, it's amazing. That is part of this covenant, this relationship, that he's going to make his home among them and they get to have a special relationship and intimacy with him. Oh man, they get to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. And God himself gives them his Torah, his instruction in his own righteousness and justice and holiness. The idea here is that they get to be a priest to the nations. They are the ones that the whole world should look to to see what God looks like. That they are to be a people who are in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another who obey him, and who care for each other so that people around the whole world can look at them and see what it looks like to see a people who are good and right and whole, just like God, who make things as they should be. And so God leads them, and he establishes them in the land that he promised to give them. And it's like as soon as they get there, they immediately turn away. They forget all about him and who he is and what he's done. And over and over, they turn away from him. They don't follow his Torah, his instruction. Instead, they abuse one another and they forget God and they worship idols. And so God calls them back to himself and maybe for a little while, they'll turn and then they turn away. And God calls them back to himself, and he gives them consequences to remind them to turn back to him. And maybe for a little while they do, but over and over again they keep turning away until finally they turn away from him, and God issues his consequences. He issues the warnings, and yet they just don't get it, and they won't turn back. And that's what we come to when we come to the book of Isaiah. Nothing is good. Nothing is right. Nothing is whole. Nothing here is as it should be. And that's where Isaiah 1 picks up. See, Isaiah is a prophet. And biblically speaking, a prophet's not someone who just tells the future. A prophet is someone who speaks the words of God to his people. And Isaiah does this in some beautiful, in some powerful ways. See, when we looked at the book of uh, Corinthians these last couple months, Paul writes through logical argument to make his point. And it's brilliant, and it's amazing in its own right. And as we looked at the book of John, and as we looked at, uh, at the book of Samuel, they, tell their, they make their point through story as they bring God's word to his people Isaiah's gonna do something different. He's gonna do something that's both more direct and yet more abstract. He's gonna write poetry. And poetry, poetry is notoriously difficult for us to define. But it's the kind of thing that we tend to recognize when we see it. So what are the some of the, the hallmarks of poetry that we come to expect? What are some of those? rhyming metaphors maybe a a sense of meter or rhythm these are some of the most common things we see in poetry oh we there we go meter rhyme and concentrated use of figures of speech these are really the the three primary things that we recognize in poetry hebrew poetry in particular is going to focus really on the latter two it has a lot of these and they really make it poetry and they really highlight the beauty of it and i'm going to talk to you guys just a little bit about these and i'm going to start by saying when we talk about rhyme we're actually not talking about rhyming sounds because any of you guys who are maybe even looking at the few first few verses you're probably going drew none of these rhyme what do you mean Hebrew poetry uses rhyme? Well, guys, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds. It rhymes thoughts and ideas. And this rhyming of thoughts and ideas is called parallelism. Parallelism is the art of saying something similar in both cola or both lines of the poem, but different is added in the second. So they say something similar, but there's a slight difference or tweak And I'll show you what I mean here. There's a few different types of parallelism. Uh, Three of these that we'll talk about are echoing parallelism. Echoing parallelism is something where the second line is going to say something really similar to the first with a slight tweak. So, for instance, Psalm 44. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. You can see the similarity here. Through you, through your name. We push back, we trample our enemies, our foes. Each one kind of echoes the thought of the first. But there is an ever so slight change or development here. As it goes from we push back, we put up resistance, to we trample, we are victorious. And so we call it echoing because they're not exactly synonymous, but they really sound similar. The next one is called progressing. It's where the second line, it progresses the idea of the first with minimal similarity. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me by setting me free. They don't actually say exactly the same thing. Instead, there's a development. My anguish leads to freedom when the Lord answers. I cried and the Lord answers. You can see that there's a development, but a really strong connection between the first and the second lines. And then the third one is called contrasting, where the second line contrasts what was in the first to make a single point, a single idea, such as the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously that it's teaching one idea, but it does so by holding up a contrast for us. And so the reason I talk about these things is because, it's not because I just want to give you guys a bunch of technical jargon. The reason I talk about these things is because I want you guys, as we're reading through, to be able to see the beauty of the poetry that we have in the scripture. The beauty of the poetry that God has given to us, and some of his brilliance therein. Because, guys, one of the amazing things about the way Hebrew poetry communicates is that, guys, if God had chosen to write his poetry in a Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish kind of a fashion, guys, we would all have to know Hebrew in order to actually recognize it as poetry. But God so brilliantly chose to write his poetry in a way that translates because it's based on ideas and not on sounds. And so you can be confident that as you're reading through the book of Isaiah, when you look at these things and you see the parallelism, you can see how God communicates in these creative and beautiful poetic ways. In addition to parallelism, it uses a lot of imagery and one of the things I love is that images often grab our emotions before they engage our minds. Before we can even verbalize what something means in poetry, usually we can feel it. For instance, Proverbs 26, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. And I'll bet before you can even verbalize with me what that's talking about, we can feel the sense of disgust there. We can kind of hear the, the dog just kind of starting to, to upchuck. And then we can just imagine it going right back and just the squeamish feeling in our guts, right? Ugh. Oh, Jordan, don't do that. Ugh. And so as we look at it, we can feel it before we can even process it. Or another one here, Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Before it even clicks in our minds, we feel the sense of serenity, of calm, of peace, and of tender care. Poetry doesn't just engage our minds it first engages our hearts. And that's one of the things that I love about poetry and what makes it so powerful is that it shows us a God who communicates to us creatively, who doesn't just want to tell us what to do or how to act or what to know about him. He doesn't just uh, capture our minds, he captures our imaginations. These images, he wants us to think and to contemplate them. It's not something that's just so direct, here's what to know. It's, I want you to think about this for a moment. Let it capture your imagination and let it engage your emotions. God wants to engage our emotions and he wants to communicate his emotions to us. He wants us to know what he's passionate about, what he loves. He wants us to know that he loves us deeply. That he hates sin and injustice. That he longs for us to turn to him. And he wants us to know these things, not just as ideas, but as emotions that he feels. That is a beautiful thing, guys. Because if we think about it for a minute, we don't write poetry for people we just kind of have like a, a casual relationship with. How many songs can you think about where someone wrote it for their accountant? right i don't write poetry for someone i just met at the grocery store but i'll write poetry for my wife we write poetry for the people we love deeply and we write poetry for the people who have heard us deeply and often we write poetry for the people we love deeply who have heard us and that is exactly what we are seeing in the book of isaiah as God writes this poetry for the people that he entered into this covenant relationship with and yet who have turned away from him time and time again with that Courtney would you come on up and would you read Isaiah chapter one for us
1: I'm going to start again, especially so that the people online can hear. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste, as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left. Like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, They shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderous. Your silver has become dross. Your choice, wine, is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore... The Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, oh, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dress and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old. Your rulers, as at the beginning, afterward you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire.
0: Hero, heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord, or Yahweh, has spoken. Right from the beginning, we get this verse, and immediately what it does is it actually evokes an image that's gonna be drawn on through the entire book of Isaiah, It's this image of a courtroom. Because if we remember and we think back, we will have seen heavens and the earth named as witnesses that day when Israel and Yahweh made their covenant with one another. And here in Isaiah chapter one, God calls on them to witness what's going down. Through the book of Isaiah, we're going to see this imagery of the courtroom with Yahweh as the plaintiff, bringing his argument against Israel and Judah, against his people. And Isaiah is going to act as the prosecutor, bringing God's word to them, bearing his argument before them, with the heavens and the earth here named as witnesses. And God wastes no time getting to the charges. We saw them in Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3. Let's take a look at those. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master. The donkey knows its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him comes to them and immediately he says you, all of you, you have rebelled against Yahweh. You have rebelled against him. He says, I raised children and you have rebelled against me and you don't even know me, he says. An ox, an ox knows its master. A donkey A donkey knows its owner's manger. Even a dumb donkey gets it. You guys don't. You don't know me. You don't recognize that I'm the one who takes care of you. You're a sinful nation. You're a brood of evildoers. A children given to corruption forsaken Yahweh, rejected him. Not only have they forsaken him, like walked away from him, they've done so intentionally, willfully. He says, you haven't changed when I've given you warnings or consequences. He has this image of why should you be beaten anymore? From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness. There's nowhere left that I can hit you to just get you to actually understand what you're doing and how big of a deal it is. Why? Why won't you understand? Why won't you change And over and over through the book of Isaiah, we're gonna see these charges come up again and again that they have rejected Yahweh. They have worshiped idols. It talks about this right at the end where it talks about the sacred oaks in which they've delighted. They have turned from Yahweh, this God that they made this covenant that they swore these vows to. And instead, they worship the things that they find on the earth. Rather than the one who made them, they've ignored the Torah. They've ignored God's instruction that He's given them of who He is in His justice, His righteousness, and His holiness. They've thrown it out the window, and instead, they practice gross injustice against one another. The widow's case is not heard, the orphan is not cared for. Instead, They're just a bunch of perverse judges who do what they want and mistreat others for their own gain. And over and over through the book, we are going to see these charges come again and again and again. And in these, we see what God really cares about. We see what matters to him. So God, he calls witnesses, he brings charges And as he goes on, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I've had more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts stop bringing me meaningless offerings your incense is detestable to me new moons Sabbaths and convocations I can't bear your worthless assemblies your new moons and your appointed festivals I hate with all of my being they've become a burden to me I'm weary of bearing them. Oh. He says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. He's called witnesses, he's brought his charges, and now he offers some evidence. And his first piece of evidence is the fact that the love and the service that they've offered him are just plain fake. They're just fake. He talks about how he has no pleasure in their offerings, that their incense is detestable to me. He says, who asked this of you? And if we really think about it, then actually we're going to go, well, you did. In the Torah, you said you wanted these things. And Yahweh's saying, I did not want this. I don't want you to do these things anymore. If we actually look at it, it says, listen to the word of, our, of the Lord. Hear the instruction of, of our God, or the Torah of our God, which is actually pretty startling because all of these things that he's talking about, they're the verbiage of Torah. And he's saying, you want to hear my Torah? My Torah right now says, stop it. I don't want any of it. It disgusts me what you're doing. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, those don't necessarily have a whole lot of pull for a lot of us. A lot of us just don't really grab the verbiage. It's just a little bit foreign. So let's kind of put it in the context of a covenant relationship that we understand a little better. Let's think about it more in terms of a husband and wife relationship here. So imagine this with me for a minute, that a wife is repeatedly cheating on her husband. She keeps going away from him, and maybe here and there she'll come back and she'll give an I'm sorry, but two days later she goes back to her lover. And even as she's doing this, her husband is well aware of what's happening, but he keeps taking her back anyways. And even as she keeps going to these other lovers, she keeps trying to maintain appearances that everything's hunky-dory in their relationship. She takes him out for their anniversary and posts pictures to her Instagram and her Facebook so that everyone thinks that they have this really great relationship and everything is grand. She tries to let it seem to the neighbors like they're living a life of suburban bliss. She tries to make it so that the people in their family think that they've got this really awesome marriage. The people in their church think that, wow, they've really worked hard to have a God-honoring marriage. No one knows, it seems, because she's just so focused on maintaining appearances. And yet she's really doing all of this for her own sake. And so that her husband just doesn't put up a big fuss. So that she does these kinds of things that he, he had once asked her to do because he really appreciated them. But she's really only doing them to try and make it so that he stays contented enough not to interfere with her going back to her lover every third day. Now imagine with me that her husband writes a letter to her. It might sound something kind of like what God says here. It might sound something like this. The multitude of your gifts, all of these gifts of apology, keep them. They don't mean anything to me. I've had more than enough of your constant insincere apologies. No gift that you give me will make things up between us. When you come and try to get together with me, I don't actually want you to. Stop bringing me all of these gifts to buy my affection. The smell of your perfume grosses me out. The family reunion you planned and the party you threw for my birthday, they're just worthless. The anniversary date you had, I hated it. It's become a burden to me to be around you. When you spread out your hands and call me in to hug me, I'll walk the other way. When you call me on the phone, I'll reject it. You don't care anything about our relationship. That's the kind of thing that God is communicating here. As He talks about Sabbaths and convocations and new moons, these are like anniversaries. These are parties where God and his people celebrate their relationship with one another, and God says, I've had enough of it. I not I'm not doing this anymore. should hit us hard as we read this he says to them your hands are full of blood you don't follow the Torah listen to my Torah what does my Torah right now say it says stop doing those things because you don't actually get it you're not really following it you didn't get the point the point wasn't simply that I wanted you to do these things. The point was, these are ways for us to connect. These are ways for us to communicate our love for one another. And you're not actually doing that because you don't actually love me. The love and service you give me are fake. You don't follow the Torah. Instead, you abuse the needy and the vulnerable. Your hands are full of blood, the blood of the people that you have hurt. So he offers them a settlement, though. Check this out. He says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Come now. Let's settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, like the blood of those that they have hurt, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He offers them this settlement. He says, if you will just turn to me, then I will forgive you I will forgive you. Turn to me. Come to me. I will make you pure and clean. I want nothing more than that. He says, if you turn to me, I will forgive you. I will purify you. But if you continue in your rebellion and sin, then I will punish you. He tells them exactly what it is that he's asking of them. He wants them to be in a right relationship with him where they turn to him and where they obey him and act like him, seeking justice, helping the oppressed, caring for the widow and the orphan. These are the things that he's saying, this is what I truly am asking of you. And if you'll just turn to me, If we can be right in our relationship with each other, and if you live in right relationship with those around you, man, I will purify you, and things will be good again. I will restore. But if you continue to hurt other people, and if you continue to turn away from me, then I will punish you, he says. I kind of had a similar conversation like this with my daughter the other day. Uh, it was bedtime, and uh, I, put them, uh, I put Caroline and Elijah in their beds. We go downstairs. After a little while, we hear that they're up, and then we hear the screaming. And so I go upstairs, and Caroline and Elijah, they're both out of their beds, and it seems that Caroline had hit her brother. And so Amanda goes to Elijah and takes care of him, and I go, and I pick up Caroline, and I take her out of the room, and I take her next door to the guest bedroom, and she's upset about it because she wants to sleep in her own bed, but I set her on the guest bed. I sit down next to her. I pick her up, and I put her in my lap, and I give her a big hug. I give her a big bear hug. I squeeze her really tight, maybe a little tighter than is comfortable for her, and then I look at her, I said, Caroline, Daddy's really strong, aren't I? She looks at me, she goes... I like, Caroline, Daddy uses his strength to protect the people that he loves. I use my strength to protect you. I use it to protect Elijah and to protect Mommy. And if someone is trying to hurt you, I will protect you. But right now you are using your strength to hurt your brother. And so I'm going to use my strength to pick you up, to remove you, and to protect him because I protect the ones that I love. That's the kind of thing that God is talking about here. He says, if you will, use, if you will be like me, if you will use your strength to care for and protect others, if you will live in right relationship with me, then things will be great. But if you use your strength to hurt other people, and if you continue to walk away from my instruction, then you will experience my protection of those you are abusing. And it's not going to be pretty because God protects the ones that he loves. He offers them this as a settlement. It's like he's saying, guys, let's, let's settle the matter. Let's figure this out before things come to judgment. Because I've come to my decision. He says in his verdict that you were once the faithful city, now you are a prostitute. You were once full of justice and righteousness, but now you're full of murderers. Once you were silver. You were something beautiful that doesn't tarnish, but now you're just dross. You're just the impurities that are pulled out. Once you were choice wine. You were the best vintage someone could get, but now it's like you're a two-day-old glass that had a bunch of ice cubes in it. You're just watered down. You were led by godly rulers, but now by rebels, by just judges, and now by corrupt ones. You guys are guilty. You're guilty as charged, he says. And so he sentences them. He says, you are a prostitute, but I will make you the faithful city again. You were full of murderers, but I will make you the city of righteousness. You were dross. You are that now, but I will purge your dross away. I will remove your impurities and make you a pure and fine vintage once again. You're led by rebels and corrupt judges, but I will restore your leaders. I'm going to once again make things good and right and whole. I'm going to make everything as it should be. And then he goes on. He says here Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish you will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted you will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen you will be like an oak with fading leaves like a garden without water the mighty man will become tender and his work a spark both will burn together with no one to quench the fire and in this, we really see where God's coming up from with his heart. He turns to them and he says, if you don't turn to me, if you don't take this settlement, justice and judgment are coming. And right now you're on the wrong side of it, buddy. I will restore you. But right now, unless you turn and repent, restoring my people means removing you from them. I will purge your dross. I will burn you away because I care about justice and righteousness and holiness. But right now, you are anything but that. So if I'm going to make things once again good and right and whole, it means your removal. You've been warned. And that seems harsh, but guys, this really shows us God's heart. It shows us that he wants our love and our devotion. He doesn't want just lip service from us. He wants us to truly love and serve him out of a relationship. It shows us that he wants us to love and serve him by loving and serving others, by being like him, by caring for those who are in need, who are oppressed. Caring for those that are really down and out and on the outskirts of society. Because that's what God does. Think about it. God rescued Israel from slavery. They were a bunch of slaves. He says, I saved you. I stood up for the ones who couldn't stand up for themselves. And That's what I want you to do because that's what I do. And it shows us that Yahweh will remove evil and injustice from the world. And guys, on the one hand, that is such good news. Does that resonate with you guys? Guys, this is amazing. Yahweh will remove evil and injustice from the world. He will make it once again good, right, whole, as it should be. And that's exciting, But if we're honest, it should also be a little bit terrifying. Because the more we know ourselves, the more we know that we are not good, right, and whole, and as we should be. And so God calls us to turn and to repent. And if we don't, this is scary news. So we see Yahweh's heart here, and we see that there are things that we should actually take and act on in our lives, that it should actually change us. This poem isn't meant just to, uh, just to engage us in a, a thoughtful way. It actually hits us in a gut, in our chest. As we read it, it should actually do that, and that should result in us changing the way that we live So let's give him our love and our devotion. Let's spend time this week connecting with God, not in just the things that we do that we're supposed to do. Let's connect with him on a relational level. Let's spend time talking with him, interacting with him. Let's spend time asking for his forgiveness looking at our lives and seeing, are there ways that we have made uh, this whole thing of being God's people simply about the things that we do? I was, I was really convicted about this as I was putting together this sermon even until about two weeks ago. I've been working on it for quite a while, looking at the whole book of Isaiah, getting ready for this series, looking at this passage, and I came to realize putting this sermon together became a thing that I do but it has not yet actually changed the way I live. Guys, we need to ask God's forgiveness for that. And we don't do that because it's a thing to do. We do it because we actually love him. And we want this to be about true and real devotion and service to him. I hope you're not like me but if you can think of ways that God is putting it on your heart where he's showing you that you've done this, spend some time today talking with him, asking his forgiveness and really just connecting with him. We can do that through talking with him, through listening to him, through his word in the scripture, or through the, his Holy Spirit within us. Let's spend time not only talking but listening to him and letting him speak to us. Maybe spend some time reading Isaiah. We can spend time learning more about him and acting like him. God tells us that his Torah for us is to seek justice. To be in right relationship with him and right relationship with other people. Maybe we can respond in relationship to him by doing that, by being that for other people. Let's love and serve him by loving and serving others. Let's seek justice and protect the vulnerable among us. And you can think about it, and there are a billion ways to do this, guys. There are so many, so many, that it can actually be debilitating to figure out where on earth do I start because not only are there so many ways to do this, but there are so many differences of opinion on how to do it. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is that you have to do, but guys, this should affect every aspect of our lives. It's not simply a list of tasks that we should accomplish or, or uh, um, ideas or causes that we should take up. Guys, this is a way of life that he's calling us to. It's not just a bunch of things to do. It's a kind of person to be. It's being like God. So we start with our families. At home, even when no one's watching, do we treat each other with love and dignity? Even when no one's watching, do we sacrifice what we want to care for those around us? Or are we more focused on the things that people see? Are we more focused on giving to causes that people see on Facebook that we've given to? Are we more focused on giving our time to things where it's noticed? Has ministry or activism or any number of other things become more important to where we're not caring for the needs of our own families? If so, there's a problem. We should repent. We should ask forgiveness of those in our families and we should make real changes. We start with our families at home and we start with our family at church. Guys, if there is someone among us that has needs as a family, it's our job to care for one another, to love each other, to be in right relationship with one another, to be a people that the world can look at and see people who are in right relationship with God and each other, where things are good and right and whole and as they should be. That's what we get to be for one another. So if you can think of someone in the church that has had needs that you've been able to meet, but you haven't done so, Ask for forgiveness. Help as you can. If we can think of people who have those needs, we should be like God and care for them. If you're among us and you have needs, let us know. Because it is our joy and our privilege to be the people of God to one another. Don't deprive us of the opportunity to look like God to demonstrate to the world a community that is good and right and whole. So we start with our families. We take it to work, the way that we treat our coworkers, the way we treat those who work under us, standing up for their best interests, caring for their needs. We need to let this be something where uh, it affects the way we live. God made work in the beginning. He made work. He gave it to people. We should work hard. Demonstrate the character of God in those ways. Demonstrate the character of God that, that loves and serves. Even when the people around us are really frustrating. We give it our time and our money. Guys, the things that we give our time and money to say a lot about where our priorities are. say a lot about that. And this is a powerful way for us to demonstrate the love and the care of God, for us to make real and actually lasting change in the lives of others. I think of a few years ago, um, Amanda and I were in a tough spot, and uh, some of the work that I had over the summer was not there. And things were really difficult. On paper, it seemed going into it like it was going to work, but it was just going to be real tight. And then reality hit, and what worked on paper just barely didn't work at all. And we were going through a real tough time, and so we asked our community group to pray for us. Because we knew in the fall, things were coming, and I'd have more work, things would pick up. But at the time... It was really challenging. It was really difficult. So we asked our community group to pray for us. And I remember that Matt Seifert was there, and he he wasn't able to actually give himself at the time. But what he was able to do was amazing for us. He contacted some people that he thought might be able to help to let them know our need. And through that, we had people come to us and say, hey, we heard that you guys are going through a difficult time right now. How much do you really need in order to help you guys? And they met that for us. And it was amazing for us to experience that. The love of God through his people. The love of God that cares for people and meets those needs. A community that makes things good and right and whole for other people. Where relationship really is as it should be. It was a powerful experience, not only of the love of others, but of the love of God. That was an amazing thing. So what we give our time and our money to matters, guys. We have the ability. And we don't have to have a lot of money to be able to do that. Honestly, if they would have given us 20 bucks, it would have been something where we felt cared for and loved, that someone was willing to sacrifice something for us. It is so amazing the power that giving something of value to someone else means, and money is not the only way to do that. Our time is immensely valuable as well. So we start in our families, we take it to work, we give it time and money, and we let it shape our politics. And guys, I'm not going to tell you guys what to vote on or what to vote for, how to vote, who to vote for, any of that, but... The way that we vote should reflect gospel priorities. It should reflect a value of people, of justice and rightness, more than it does just what's good for me. And so I encourage you to pray for that, or pray about that, to think about it, to ask God, what does gospel priority look like in my voting? and to listen to the Holy Spirit, to listen to the scriptures, and let that be lived out. And yet, at the same time, let's remember that our hope is not in the government, guys. Our hope is not in politics. Thank the Lord. Our hope is in the justice and righteousness of God himself. And God's primary vehicle for bringing justice and rightness into this world is not the government. It's his family. It's us. We don't get to pass the baton and let the government take care of it for us, guys. It is our right and our honor and our responsibility to do that, to be that in this world. We are the ones who are called to be a people that demonstrate goodness, rightness, and wholeness, who live in relationship with God and others as things should be. So let's repent of our sin. Let's turn away from it. Let's turn to God himself and ask for his forgiveness cuz guys God is coming and he will set the world right. Let's be people who are on the right side of his justice. Who stand for it and not against it. Cuz guys, we we think about God's judgment as being harsh sometimes. But as we've looked at the world these last few months, we have seen so many major injustices. Have we not? We've looked at it, and we've seen people abusing their power and hurting others, and we cry out, injustice. We've seen so many people uh, mistreating children, and we cry out, injustice. We've seen people racially oppressed, and we cry out, injustice. We see it, and we recognize it as wrong, and we want something done about it. Well, guys, good news. God sees it too, and he's going to do something about it. Let's join him. Let's take part, and that means first and foremost repenting, turning away from it, and turning to him. This should be a warning to us, and it should be exciting to us, because, guys, we get to imagine what this world will be. Not only should we repent, but guys, let's take a moment as we're singing here to just imagine what this world will be like when God sets everything right, when things are good and right and whole, the way they should be. And Let's praise him. Let's honor him. Let's thank him. Let's cry out in joy because of the justice that he has promised. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much that we get to be part of what you're doing in this world. Father, we pray that you would convict our hearts, that you would challenge us. Father, we pray that we would turn to you in love and devotion. We pray that we would turn to you in real and true relationship. We pray that you would uh, use us to be forces for what is right and good in this world. That we would be an example to this world of what's good and right and whole. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.